So knowing that you heard a recorded talk from Joseph Goldstein last night, I did have to ponder what could I say that could follow on from that. I know that talk that was was offered. I know James said something like probably the best talk so far or maybe the whole retreat. Joseph is, of course, a a dear, respected uh, teacher, colleague, and friend, but he he has the gravitas that when Joseph said some, says something, then you know it's true, right? Believe me, having taught with him quite a bit, it doesn't matter what you say, Joseph comes in and said the same thing, and people are like, well, Joseph said. <laughs> so I recognize that, and I know that talk, you know, is, was a really big, deep uh, dive into Dharma about where this practice can lead, the, the promise of freedom that this practice leads to. Um, so it was, I was amused to see that someone had actually written a note to Joseph, which people often do after the talk. And I thought, they do know he's not here, right? He wasn't just beaming in. But anyway, it said, great talk last night, way better than the other teachers. <laughs> so thank you, whoever has a sense of humor. I appreciated that. Just kidding. Hope you all have a great, joyful weekend. Anonymous, as they often are. So that's where we're starting from. But I thought what would be helpful, because as I said, what Joseph presented was kind of a big map, a deep dive into the power and the potential of this practice. I wanted to emphasize the importance of the fundamentals and the foundations of what we do here as practice, that this is also really helpful. Yes, to have a sense of the potential, the vision of the practice, but it's this moment-to-moment experience that we're cultivating here that's so important and so powerful. So I thought to begin a series on the Satipatthana Sutta, which is this... um, a pivotal text in the Majjhimanikaya, the middle-length discourses, MN number 10, and it includes the Buddha's basic instructions for the meditation practice that we do. It's just a brilliant exposition about how to cultivate mindfulness and a wise relationship to all aspects of our experience so that we develop a greater and greater sense of freedom, both in the moment that we're practicing in this way, but certainly that it's onward leading, that it has this potential to take us all the way to awakening. And I also thought this was a good place to start because it starts with mindfulness of the body, just this very grounded sense of here's the body. Let's develop a wise relationship to it, get to know it, use it to ground our attention. So Satipatthana... It is usually translated as the four foundations of mindfulness. Some people like the arousing or the establishment or establishing of mindfulness. Another teacher says frames of reference. I I grew up with and kind of like the four foundations of mindfulness. It's where we orient, what grounds our practice, gives it a basis from which we can explore and expand to the depths of realization. And so it's the beginning of a series, and and myself and other teachers will probably give a talk on each one. There's four of them, so the start of a series. And I often do this on a long retreat like this because we have the time to go into um, these teachings. Most retreats are too short, and even this first foundation of mindfulness, you could make ten talks out of, And so I'm just going to be really skimming it, but... For you as serious practitioners, I think it's really helpful if you're not familiar with this sutta or just perhaps to remind you of what it covers because, as I said, it's a description of both what we practice but why we practice it. What's the impact, the effect of being with our experience in this way? So it's been extremely central in the development of the tradition we're in, which is called either the Theravada tradition or the early Buddhist tradition, 
basing our practices, teachings, and understanding on the text from the Pali Canon, this collection of um, discourses, mainly from the Buddha, but including some other teachers, um, 26 volumes, a huge amount of information, and this middle-length discourses. We were so fortunate that Bhikkhu Bodhi, a great uh, scholar and translator, made available this somewhat readable translation. Prior to that, there'd been many translations, not all that accessible, and this one really shifted, and now he's done all of the major Nikayas um, with his translations. And there's other good translations available now, but this came out in, I think, the mid-'90s, and it really made much more accessible, these teachings um, that are from the Buddha. And so after 2,600 years after the Buddha spoke these words, as best we can know, we are still referring to them, using them as a guide for our practice in this tradition. And if you know anything about the history of this tradition in the West, particularly, um, as it developed here in you know, the US, Europe, Australia, different countries, um, the people who went to Asia and had the blessing and benefit of learning from the great masters of Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka and other countries where Buddhism is still flourishing and available, what they brought back from those countries was mainly these practices. A shorthand could just be mindfulness. It's kind of the generic um, over-description over Vipassana is a, is a more accurate um, term that's used to describe this. I think I mentioned in my first talk, Vipassana literally means to see clearly. So we sometimes translate it as insight meditation. That's why centers are called insight meditation centers. This is this central text and central practices. But sometimes as we encounter mindfulness in all its forms, and we know now it's become secularized through MBSR and other, other avenues becoming more broadly and widely available, which is wonderful, we can think that what we've learned is what is insight meditation or is mindfulness or is vipassana. And even as we teach it here, we teach just a subset of what is in that sutta. And in Asia, there are many teachers, traditions, lineages that take the same sutta and have come up with very different practices than what we teach here. So I think it's helpful to know that so we don't get, certainly don't want to get dogmatic about this is what is meant and is practiced and this is the best way and the only way because that's not true. There are many valid, powerful traditions that come out of people's interpretation of this text. So what we teach here, and especially on a retreat like this, we call the modified Mahasi method. And that's based from a teacher, I think I mentioned him in an earlier talk, Mahasi Sayadaw, Burmese great meditation master um, from the 20th century, um, and had the, the insight, the wisdom, to realize that it wasn't only monastics who were interested or wanted or could practice meditation. And so devised a way of teaching that lay people could come for short intensive periods of practice. They didn't have to ordain and stay for months or years, but really gain benefit from this practice of mindfulness. Upandita was Mahasi Sayadaw's main lineage holder. And so many of our teachers um, have practiced and some of you, perhaps, have practiced with Upandita, very influential in the sort of modern Vipassana circle in the you know, Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Society, our sister center in Barry, Massachusetts. But there are many other lineages, many of which also influence us. A prime one is the Thai forest tradition. Ajahn Chah is one of the main teachers we refer to in that, and his lineage of Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Suchito, and the Bhikkhunis, Ananda Bodhi, and Santa Chita, as well as many others, carrying forward this tradition of um, practice that's much more relaxed, integrated into the natural world, 
and a very spacious, um, integrated way of practicing. And so we have that as one of our frames of reference as well. Some of my dearest teachers and um, retreats that I've sat have been with some of those people I just mentioned. Very helpful and influential. Many of you know the teachings of S.N. Goenka, that um, Indian man who practiced in Burma and uh, also in this tradition, but developed, his teacher was Ubakin, and developed a teaching, a practice of sweeping meditation, where you sweep the attention through the body, and there's a whole system and understanding about the direction and, and potency of, of that practice, but quite different than how we relate to mindfulness. There's one teacher, also not no longer alive, uh, Venerable Damodaro, from the Satipatthana, his practice was raising and lowering the hand and being mindful of that. Again, a powerful technique. Anything can be if you do it, take it up. Sunlun Sayadaw developed um, almost, um, what's the word, like holotropic breathing, very deep, intensive breathing. To, uh, uh, and then you stop and you just sit still. So again, lots of different ways of practicing. Venerable Paok Sayadaw, again, a number of us have practiced with him, took this sutta and the Anapanasati sutta and developed um, a, a system of teaching absorption that ultimately takes uh, the teachings in this sutta and practices them um, to mastery. And for most people, his system is so profound and deep, it can take months, if ever, that one can to develop and, and, and attain um, traction in that system. And then another teacher we've mentioned, Sayadaw Tejaniya, doesn't care what object you pay attention to, doesn't care what postures the body in, but wants you to notice your attitude and how the, the quality of the mindfulness, not what you're paying attention to, and, and develops a very spacious way of practicing. So all different, valid, powerful ways of practicing, interpreting this sutta differently. So just, I think, helpful to know that you might have only had experience in this tradition or with these forms of teaching, and it's not all there is. If you go to Asia, you can find many more than, than what I've mentioned here. But I think it is helpful for us as serious practitioners to know what the Buddha said about this practice. To know the, you know, especially this sutta, and you don't, not saying you have to start studying suttas, but this sutta in particular. And tonight I want to include some of the aspects of the sutta that we actually don't teach in these kind of retreats because each section can be a whole and complete and, um, intricate practice on its own, and it would just get too complicated to try and incorporate it all. So we've distilled it down to this bare attention moment after moment to what's happening at the six sense doors. You could say that's the sort of distillation of, of our practice. But the other things that are included are also important and you know can find a place in your practice if you're interested. So the sutta opens with a kind of setting, as these suttas often do, and having had the good fortune to go a couple of times uh, on pilgrimage to the, what's called the Buddhist holy sites, where you visit in a deliberate way the places where the Buddha was born, became enlightened, did a lot of his teachings, uh, and, and died. And it's powerful to be there, but you, you start to recognize it feels like a real place when you read the opening of these suttas. One of the early lines in his description of this set of teachings is, this is the direct path for the purification of beings. And that means leading to the liberation that Joseph was talking about. That used to be, or sometimes you'll hear that translated as, this is the only way. But I don't think that's what's meant. It does mean this is the way this goes. This is the one-way path. If you're on this path, this is the direction it goes. But the Buddha was never dogmatic 
about these things. So this path goes in one direction, to greater and greater freedom, to the potential of full, ultimately full liberation. And then it describes the qualities we should bring to practice, these three words, ardent, clearly comprehending, and mindful. This is what the Buddha says is supportive as we're practicing in this intensive way. So this word ardent or diligent, it's sometimes translated from the Pali, which is atapi, and it literally means to be on fire. So I remember James talking about, you know, someone saying practice as though your hair's on fire. It doesn't, to me, mean that. But it does mean that we give ourselves to this practice. There's, there is a passion in this practice. We're fully committed to it. That's what atapi means. Sometimes this practice can seem a little cool, or even, you could say, dry. Have you ever had the thought already, another breath? I've seen a breath. I have a sense of what this breath is going to be like, and we can kind of find ourselves getting a little disengaged or disinterested. Oh, another walking period. How can I fill that up with other things that look like walking but perhaps aren't doing the formal practice? And we disconnect, disengage. What the Buddha is saying, we need to commit and surrender to this form if we really want to feel the benefits. Where this passion, you could say, or this heart quality can come from is in our relationship to the moment. I remember on one retreat, a student probably on this retreat a few years ago, someone talking about in a practice meeting the joy they felt in truly connecting with the moment. And you've probably also had those times. Often it's also out in walking, where you're just walking and you're in your experience, collected and calm and open and sensitive, and nothing else is needed. This is atapi. We're fully committed. We're fully present. And we find a satisfaction or a contentment or sort of um, positive feedback loops just in paying attention. The object doesn't have to be exciting. It doesn't have to be dramatic. But we feel the wholesomeness of developing mindfulness. So this is the ardent uh, part of the phrase. And then clearly comprehending and mindful. Dawn brought that in this morning as she was speaking in the instructions. Sampajanya and sati. Clear comprehension and mindfulness. And so we use this word mindfulness all the time, right? Have, have we defined it yet? I don't think so. I, you should, often I give a talk early on where I define what mindfulness is because it's so, as I said earlier, become, you know, almost, almost mainstream. Every now and then, one of my more mainstream friends will go, you're not mainstream yet. Don't even think that you're... But it feels like it in the Bay Area, doesn't it? If you live here, it's like mindfulness and everything on every, every plaque outside every door. Um, what is it? The word is sati in Pali, and its etymological root is related to memory. It's got something to do with our conceptual mind. But what it literally means is knowing what's happening in the moment. It's using that what might be usually given to concept or, or figuring things out to directly know. So Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as understanding our experience. Venerable Nalayo translates it as knowing our experience. But there's something about knowing or understanding what's happening. Because it's one thing to be, you could say, if you've, say, got a knee pain, oh, I know it's happening, or I'm mindful of it. But we're reactive to it, right? We're caught in it. We're aversive to it. That isn't actually mindfulness. Mindfulness lets us get closer to the experience and understand its nature. We learn something from the experience. So implicit in what is samasati, wise mindfulness, 
is some wisdom. Mindfulness is a wholesome factor, especially samasati, which is one of the path factors. Samasati is a wholesome factor, and what it does when it's operating, it supports, recognizes, and increases wholesome states, other wholesome states, and just through its bare functioning, reduces and diminishes and even lets go of unwholesome states just by being mindful. This is the power of mindfulness. When we see really clearly, you've probably had that sense, especially working with thoughts as we were doing this morning. If you, choose, if you have a thought and you don't see it with wisdom, with mindfulness and believe it, there's your world, solidified, real, this is the way things are. Or you see a thought for what it is in its ephemeral nature, and a moment in that moment of mindfulness, it has gone. Where is it? As Carol Wilson, my dear friend and colleague, go, as dry as the mummies in the you know, Egyptian tombs, as dead as the pharaohs, it's gone, past. Mindfulness allows us to be in that moment with clarity and not try to pull it back, pick it up, what a what was that? No, we're in the moment and we see its nature. It's gone. And then I just want to note, um, if you, hopefully you're not on this retreat, but when you do read this sutta, the sutta, the, the sutta refers often to bhikkhu. And that's traditionally considered a male monastic. Bhikkhuni is the female equivalent, but the Buddha was often talking to male monastics. And it's actually the tradition in the collection or as they took these texts down, they would only talk about like who was sitting in front. It was a misogynistic, layered society. So that's the way things were back then. Um, so the, the, the lay, um, I mean, the bikunis would be sitting to one side or behind. And so they would just use shorthand. But again, Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, this great translator said, a bhikkhu can refer to any serious practitioner. So in that sense, we can hear ourselves being spoken to in this sutta as serious practitioners. And then this section, this open opening section ends with, again, our, the Buddha's advice to us that one practicing in this way, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, or as Venerable Analeo translates it, free from desires and discontent. And I cannot never, I always, when I read that, think, if I could do that, I wouldn't need the rest, right? You, that's basically what we're practicing for, is to put away covetousness and grief, which is basically desire and aversion. But what the Buddha is pointing to is, again, a wise relationship to our practice. We can't expect practice to deepen if we're caught up in the things of the world, if we're constantly checking our phone or how many likes we got on our latest Instagram post. Not going to work. Have you had a sense of that already as you've given up your cell phones and devices? It really is talking about a reorientation, especially in this time of serious practice. The world is not our concern. Our concern is this world here, and this, you know, container that we're practicing in. So it's a renunciation, which is what's needed as we practice in this way. So that's just the Buddha setting the stage for these helpful guidelines for practice. Ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. And then he goes on to exploring each of these four foundations, and that's the foundation, first foundation of the body, second foundation of Vedana, or feeling tone, third foundation of the mind and the contents of mind, and then the fourth foundation, complicated one, we usually just translate as dhammas. So as I said, we'll probably give a talk on each of these. But what's interesting is it's said that each one of them alone 
is sufficient for awakening. You could take this first foundation and that would take you all away, or any of the others, if they were practiced with enough um, diligence. But put together, they, they are this brilliant map of, of practice addressing every aspect of our mind and heart, of our way of being in the world. So it's, it's just an amazing set of teachings. So tonight I want to go through uh, the contemplation of the body. And the Buddha spoke about two main modes of relating to the body. One is indulging the body, and he talked about you know sensual pleasures and the pleasures he had experienced as a young man, um, indulging in makeup and perfume and clothes. He'll, there's often descriptions of people coming to visit him, and they're you know very... Um, involved in that aspect of life. And then on the other hand, he would talk about the ascetic mode of practice, which he also explored to um, a profound degree before his awakening, where he, they are, people are renunciate. They're, in his day especially, they're often wanderers, um, serious practitioners who took up these different practices, but really strong, strong emphasis on asceticism. What the Buddha, well, I'll say that later, actually. I, could have, I didn't have that in my notes. Okay. Um, we can relate to that. I mean, all of us have had our times or we've seen or been kind of uh, conditioned by the indulgence of the body, obsession with the body and the bodily looks and fashion and things like that. And ascetic practices... I mean, most spiritual traditions to this day have some form of that, whether it's fasting or renunciation, um, the rigor of uh, monastic life, whatever tradition people are in, certainly the Christian tradition has lots of very rigorous ascetic practices. But what we've... At, and, and, and sometimes in that asceticism, there can be a denying or ignoring of the body which isn't healthy. What unfortunately we have added is a disconnect and judgment around the body, self-hatred of our bodies, which the Buddha would never have recognized or understood. This is not a healthy relationship to the body. What he came up with as he talked about these two extremes of indulgence and asceticism is what he called the middle way between those two where we take care of the body. There's even a reverence to the body. This is our vehicle for awakening. But we're not obsessed with the body. We're not identified with the body. And that was key to his shift in his teaching about how to relate to the body. And the Buddha's practice of turning the attention to mindfulness of the body in in an intimate, detailed way as far as I know, was radical in his time, and it's still pretty radical today. We're so outward-oriented, but to actually take this time to know the body on this intimate, moment-to-moment, objective way, it's not what most people normally do, right? And so it's a big shift, something we have to learn how to do. And so... The Buddha offers actually, I think it's seven, I lost, I didn't write down the number, seven or 14 different, I think it's seven, different body practices. Where he begins is with the breath, the body and the breath, just like we've done here day after day, and like many spiritual traditions do, Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, there's often a relationship to the breath. And again, the Buddha says that just mindfulness of the breath, anapanasati, mindfulness of in-out breathing, is sufficient to awaken and will fulfill the other three foundations of mindfulness. So this is what is in the text as the introduction to this practice with the body. And how does one, in regard to the body, 
abide contemplating the body. Here, gone to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, one sits down. Having folded one's legs crosswise, set one's body erect, and established mindfulness in front of one, mindful one breathes in, mindful one breathes out. Breathing in long, one knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows, I breathe out short. One trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. I shall breathe in calming the bodily formation. One trains thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formation. Just as a skilled turner or one's apprentice when making a long turn in carving some wood knows I'm making a long turn or when making a short turn knows I make a short turn. So too, breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. And it continues. There's a lot of repetition in the suttas. You might get that sense. But here's our basic instructions. Now, admittedly, we're not going to a forest or the root of a tree or an empty hut, but this is our equivalent. This is our practice place. Back in the Buddha's day, and even to this day in Asia, most people found it relatively easy to sit cross-legged. Most of us don't. But we establish our meditation posture with our spine, our body erect, and then we begin noticing the breath, and calming the bodily formations. Does that sound familiar? It's what we've been teaching. This is the Buddha speaking to us. And what he's saying is, notice the nuances of the breath. Really get close to, intimate with the breath, so you understand its nature. And it don't, you know, when it says, I know a long breath or a short breath, Different people interpret uh, interpret that different ways. I don't interpret it as one should deliberately breathe in long or short. It's just to know the breath as it is. And I just read today that the average person breathes 20,000 times a day. So hopefully you can catch a few here and there. Lots, and if you've missed them, you know, to whatever extent, here's another one. This breath, that's the heart of our practice knowing what's happening, beginning with this breath and body, whatever is your um, place of connection. And then in the sutta, after each kind of specific set of instructions, there's another section that is either entitled the refrain or the insight section, and it's repeated but just substituted, like for the first foundation, it talks about the body or this particular relationship with the body. And what it talks about the body is knowing the body internally, externally, and both internally and externally. Now, I'm sure all of us have heard the instruction, be aware, be mindful of your body, and our sense of that is, right, our closing the eyes and feeling the body from within, internal awareness of the body. But here in the sutta, the Buddha says, be aware externally. Again, many traditions take this differently. Park Sayadaw takes it literally. And and practitioners in his system can sometimes develop psychic powers to the extent that they can actually feel someone else's breath or body parts or whatever. We don't go there. But I think it's helpful if you know that this is, again, what's in the text. Anytime there's a disturbing sound in the hall, particularly perhaps a heavy breather or something, which it's amazing as we get more sensitive, it's like, who is that? Why? It's just a breath happening. You can notice your breath or someone else's breath. Whether you get upset or not, that's optional. But it's just another breath. And so including this external puts us in a relational field. We're not just, you know, closing the sense doors so that we're not in relationship with others, but it can actually expand our sense 
of practice. So helpful to mention that. And then in this refrain, it repeats again that the nature of the body is to arise, persist, and pass away. The nature of all aspects of the body. I was just reading some stuff about the body as I was preparing for this, and you know, all of the statistics about how often you know the cells of your skin um, re- what is it replenish and the cells of the body, it's all in flux. There's nothing that's static. Your hair is growing, your fingernails are growing, your eyebrows are growing. You know, the skin is, is, is sloughing off. Just, you know, how much... I won't even go there. <laughs> it was kind of sobering, some of those details. But this is the nature of the body. We're asked to know this, not in abstract, but this body, changing, you know, new things arising, other things being let go of. One of the things the Buddha does so brilliantly is invite us to deconstruct experience. When, some, when we take something to be solid and real and permanent, it's kind of unworkable, right? It's just fixed. But when you start to know on this intimate level, oh, the nature of the body is change. There's nothing solid in there. I wish I could remember some of these statistics, like there's more bacteria in your mouth than there are people on earth, or something like that. You know, we, we take it as sort of so solid and us, but what is actually us? There's no solid self at the center. It's all shifting, changing, conditioned, and actually, you could say, impersonal. This is what we see, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. And unsatisfactoriness doesn't mean it's always a problem. It just means we can't rely on it to bring us lasting happiness, because it's changing. And what happens when we start to see clearly in this way, mindfulness creates a choice point. Do I cling, as Joseph was talking about last night? Or do I see wisely and let go? And to feel viscerally the difference. We can only do that if there's enough samasati, clarity of mindfulness, that we recognize what's happening and the suffering that will come if we try to grasp a hold of it, try to fix it, try to make it a certain way. That's not its nature. And so we start to learn how to respond wisely to the body, to the mind, to the heart, to the inner and outer world. And then lastly, there's always this refrain, something like, mindfulness is established to the extent necessary to know there's a body. And I think that's just such a helpful instruction because we can get all kind of lost. There's so many complicated practices, but the Buddha comes back to mindfulness enough that you know you have a body. Most of us can get there, right? Have a body. It's why we've talked about using the body and the body posture. Just that sense of the body. Not my body or a good body or a bad body. Just this direct knowing. Mindfulness established to the extent there is a body for bare knowledge and mindfulness. You kind of, that's the pith instruction there. All the rest is kind of adding to that. Joseph would often teach that as an instruction. Just be mindful and know you have a body. His teacher, Venerable Munindra, would say, if you sit and know you're sitting, all of the Dhamma will unfold from there. I was going to say we can make it so complicated, which is what I'm actually doing this evening, but always coming back to making it simple. So, starts with the breath in the body and then and how to relate to that wisely and then goes through the four postures. The Buddha said we should be mindful. Sitting, walking, which we've covered quite a bit, but standing and lying down. We haven't done a standing meditation session. We probably should one of these days because I think it just empowers people to use that as a really skillful posture. 
If the body is uncomfortable sitting or there's low energy, sleepiness, even restlessness, standing is a great posture. One of my first teachers, Christopher Titmus, would do hours of each of these as a, as a practice. Literally, he'd have his one meal of the day as a monk, and then he'd do 12 hours of one. And then the next day, 12 hours of another. I don't know if he did the lying down, probably didn't do that. Wasn't sleeping much. But just that determination to explore the body in these different forms. And then it goes on to what's the section um, called On Full Awareness. And this is uh, what is said. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending their limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing their robes and carrying their outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silence. Pretty comprehensive, right? Especially as a practitioner. I mean, obviously more things in our complicated society, but for your life here, pretty comprehensive. And so this section again, in this way they abide, contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, and both internally and externally. And they abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. That too is how a bhikkhu abides, contemplating the body as a body. So it's just an invitation to practice all the time. There is nothing that need be held outside of your mindfulness. And again, not to take this as a burden, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not mindful all the time. We build that continuity. It takes time. But that's the possibility that mindfulness, just this light touch of mindfulness, can include all aspects, our work meditation, the in-between times, frittering around in our room, we can be mindful. And then the next section is a detailed exploration of the body. And this is one that we don't teach formally, but it's an extremely important practice. Um, it's usually called the 32 parts of the body. But if you count what's actually in the sutta, there's only 31 but people, you know, they, they didn't do, you know, they did autopsies, but they weren't, specific, you know, looking at every aspect of the body. There's a lot that isn't included. But their list is pretty comprehensive, but they didn't have the brain. So we added the brain to get 32. And sometimes you will see this section, uh, a heading or in, you know, certain references or framing about relating to the body, this word, asuba. And I've seen it translated, actually even Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think he's changed now, but he will translate it as foulness or loathsomeness. And this I always found kind of disturbing. It's like that doesn't seem equanimous about relating to the body. It doesn't even seem true. But this word asuba, suba means beautiful. So it literally means not beautiful not looking to find in the experience of the body something that we can get inflamed over, get possessive about ours or someone else's. So um, that is a better translation. And in the text, it actually compares this practice of going through the parts of the body to someone looking at a sack of grains and beans and kind of with an opening at both ends but remarking on the kind of grains and beans, oh, this is red rice or black rice or brown rice or black beans or whatever. That's not describing it as foul or loathsome. It's just equanimity, it's just saying what's here. And I actually did this practice, um, as I was curious about it, because no one had taught it to me, on a retreat I did at the Forest Refuge where I took two weeks and, you know, there's a whole structure that you do to go through this list of 32. It's divided into these sections. You do five and then five and you forward and back and then forward and back. 
Um, and it's very concentrating. And when I started, I'm like, okay, it's like, where's my pancreas again? And what does the liver actually... I'm not a medical person, I didn't know. But in the library at the Forest Refuge, I found this book. It was a catalog from an exhibition called Body Worlds. Anyone ever get to that exhibition? It was kind of an amazing um, thing that this, I forget his name now, had done where he got bodies that were donated for this purpose and used a process called plastinization where he could preserve them, but he could open them up so you could see the systems of the body, the circulatory system or the digestive system or the nerves or the bones. But they were real people. And in this book, I, you know, it was ex exposed, the body and all these functions. And so that was my Bible. I, I would study that and then do these practices and actually ended up being able to go to that exhibit. And it was so interesting when I saw these bodies, they were the same ones in the book. It was like they were my old friends. Oh, there's that guy, <laughs> like this. And I had such reverence and respect and appreciation for the people that offered their bodies for this. It's huge learning. But what I found in this practice was I wasn't disgusted by the body. It wasn't loathsome. It was amazing that all of these systems worked and I didn't have a clue what they were doing and I didn't need to. But if I took care of the body, they would sustain me. And I also got a sense of deep equanimity. It's not personal. All of these aspects of the body are universal. The basic human layout, you know, there's superficial variations, but we are all so much more alike than different. So it was an incredibly powerful practice just to depersonalize this relationship to the body and see its universal nature. And it's just an assembly of parts, all working together, but no me, I, me, or mine to be found in the center of it. So it was a powerful practice. And all of these, as I said, I could give a whole talk on looking at this, working with this. Another, the next section is the four elements, and we do touch on this a little, um, where the Buddha just says, notice the elemental nature of your bodily experience. And these are the four great elements of earth, water, fire, and air. And the earth is all of the sensations, experiences of hardness, solidity, pressure, um, even softness, the sort of opposites are all included. This is the earth element. Water is fluidity, softness, and cohesion, just like when you add water to flour and you make that dough that's very elastic, coheres together. That's the property of water in the body, the fluids in the mouth, the bodily you know, blood and all of the different fluids. Fire is all the dimensions of heat and coolness. And air is um, vibration and the movement of the breath and motion. These can be really helpful ways to understand our experience. Instead of going, oh, my ankle is killing me. This cushion is not thick enough. Earth element, hardness. And again, when I'm saying this, to, that you sit through a lot of pain, but sometimes taking it out of the personal, taking it out of the story, the elemental nature especially with strong sensations, if you're cold or you're hot, it's just the fire element. And we can surrender to it. We can know it a little more clearly. Um, because so, so often what we're trained to do, even as we think we're being mindful or noting, is we're noting concepts. My knee hurts is a concept. Feeling pressure or tightness, or um, hardness, that's more directly what we can actually know. Even saying in, out, for the breath, that's a concept, in and out. What are you actually feeling? 
feel the breath. Don't watch the breath from above or outside. We want to directly know the elemental nature. Really interesting in walking meditation. You know, just again, I've played with just noticing the elements in walking. Sense of hardness as the step is pressed down. Lightness, the air element. You know, feeling the wind. Sense of coolness or warmth. You can just play. The, the, the water element you can feel in the smoothness of the joints, the synovial fluid. Just taking one and just kind of tuning into it can be, can be interesting. And again, deconstructing our experience so we relate to it skillfully, not creating I, me, or mine out of it. Got to move on. Got a big section to cover. The last practice is the charnel ground contemplations. And again, this is something we don't teach in retreats like this, though we do have whole retreats where we invite people who choose to come to do these contemplations. And in Asia, it's very common in Buddhist monasteries um, because there's often... Not the here in the West, we hide bodies away. Mo- many of us grow up not seeing a dead body. Much more common to be able to see and even to practice in what's called a charnel ground. You know, sometimes bodies are left out, certainly like in Varanasi in India, the burning ghats. Um, and we've trivialized death. I mean, kids can grow up seeing thousands of deaths, right? But they're superficial, they're, they're made to seem like a game, not real, not the imprint of how, how important this is as a teaching. So here we're invited to look directly at this reality of death and dying. And you don't have to have a dead body to do this. The sutta actually said, as though one were to see a corpse in these various stages of decay. Again, not saying you should take up this as a practice, but for all of us, death is a great teacher. Our relationship, you know, these are called the heavenly messengers, right? Most Many of you are familiar with that. The messengers of old age, sickness, death, um, being separated from what one loves, and uh, the law of karma. These are the five subjects for for recollection that are chanted daily in monasteries. We resist that fact. Our society creates a sense of deniability around death. I mean, I've seen all the anti-aging creams and the fitness potions and the surgeries and the, you know, get fit regimens that are guaranteed to keep you young. There actually is a place called the Immortality Institute, an organization whose, whose slogan is Conquering the Blight of Involuntary Death. <laughs> this is our attitude, right? It's bad, it's wrong, this shouldn't be happening. What we're invited to here is to actually recognize this is the nature. And so in the practices, as this contemplation is happening, what we say is, This body is subject to that. I am not different. I, too, will go through some version of this. And so this practice isn't about being morbid or gloomy, you know, we're all going to die, oh my God, we're all going to die. But the more realistic and free we are about that, the more we can actually fully live. Because some version, old age, sickness, and death, I mean, death inevitably, but, you know, we never know how old or sick we might get, but it's very common to go through those. How do we relate to it? So it's important to have a sense of humor about it, too. Um, I found a couple of quotes. This is Nikhil Saluja. He says, when I die... I want my body to be donated for research, but more specifically to a scientist who is working on bringing dead bodies back to life. <laughs> I mean, I think that's ridiculous. If you've died, something's wrong, right? Well, you, 
Anyway, I don't quite get it. Groucho Marx, I intend to live forever or die trying. I mean, that's the case for all of us, right? Until we die, there we go. If you've met someone who has fully faced their death, others' deaths, you know, hospice work is so powerful, you can feel the power of that way of being, of not denying this powerful truth. When the Buddha opened to these truths, to heavenly messengers, he was so terrified. That's what propelled him on his quest. But what he ultimately realized, it wasn't by running away or fixing everything so he wouldn't die. It was by turning to face it with equanimity and conviction and openness. That was the way to freedom. So this is where we start in our practice. The first foundation of mindfulness. The body sitting, the breath moving in and out, and then bringing in parts of these other practices that seem helpful for you. The body is such a great vehicle, both in its own expression of life, but as we've seen, the body is impacted by thought, And it's certainly impacted by emotions, which we'll talk about in the coming days. Using the body as our touchstone, we're grounded in the present moment. And that's the only place we can actually live our lives. Find freedom, find contentment, find happiness through this wise relationship that's kind and compassionate yet through the deconstruction of the constructs we created around the body, we see its nature. Again, the three characteristics, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not self. Again and again, through this vehicle of the body. As the Buddha said, all you need for your awakening is in this fathom-long body. Everything is here. Pay attention, and it will be revealed to you. So I want to finish with a line from the Dhammapada, again another collection of teachings of the Buddha. These are often in short verses. And this says, simply talking a lot doesn't maintain the Dhamma. Whoever, although they've heard next to nothing, sees the Dhamma through their body is not heedless of the Dhamma. They are one who maintains the Dhamma. So let's let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention. I know there was a lot covered in the talk tonight, and as we often say, take what's helpful, let the rest go. You'll retain what's helpful for you to retain. But remember this powerful, succinct teaching of the Buddha. Mindfulness of the body is established to the extent necessary to to sustain mindfulness, and clear comprehension. We come back to that, body sitting, and then see where does it go from there. So we have about half an hour for walking uh, before we come back from chanting. I'd be meaning to say this, but I know I've been ending the sitting at 9.30. We actually made a mistake. It was meant to be 9.30. If the 9.40 has kind of put you off, 
know that we end it before then. And anyone who wants to sit longer, of course, is welcome to. But 9.30 is when I end the sitting. So I think that's a good time to bring the day to a close. Please come back if you have energy. Walk outside and you're going to wake up a little bit because it's cold out there. Stay warm, stay dry. Take care. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.